You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking Story is brought to you by Michael Carlin's novel, Motel California. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The Sunset Strip's Hotel Palomino, nicknamed the Motel California, has them all. And now it has a murder on its hands. Podcasters Farrah Graham and her sidekick Jimmy Doubts are racing against the clock in this comedic mystery, featuring identical twin detectives who incessantly argue about glam rock, a sociopathic cowboy with an axe to grind, and a mob boss addicted to home improvement television. Pick up Motel California in print or ebook format wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, and welcome to Uncorking Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to share with you my recent interview with author Karen Mangy, whose book, Success with Less, will change your life. But more on that in a minute. I wanted to start by updating you. On a few things that are going on in, in my life, first off, I'm very happy to say that the latest Farrah Graham novel is in the capable hands of my editor, Aviva Layton. And I have to say, this is the longest one yet, the longest of Farrah's stories, clocked in at 104,200 words, which probably doesn't mean much to you, but it means a lot to me. Usually these things are between 80 and 90,000 words, and this one... Uh, was uh, was a little bit longer, is a little bit longer. Uh, no no telling how long it'll be after Aviva gets done with it. But anyway, I thought I'd let you know that. I, I will let you know, uh, those of you who are fans of the Faragram series, I know there's a few of you out there, uh, I will let you know that Jimmy Doubts, our, our very uh, lovable, lovable, Farrah's lovable sidekick, Jimmy Doubts, has fallen for the wrong girl. Oh, God, it's so tragic. I mean, times at times it's tragic. But, you know, it happens. You know, we all make mistakes, especially when we're young. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about it. And uh, I'm not sure when the book will be out because uh, I've got to, of course, work with the editor to fine-tune it and then uh, go through the very humbling process of querying agents to see if they would like to represent it. And then, of course, getting myself prepared for all the rejection that's going to come my way. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, thinking about wallpapering my office and uh, I'm looking around, the walls are bare, and I think I'll probably be able to wallpaper it with all the projection letters that will be coming in. And I don't say that to be uh, overly dramatic. It's just the the, the reality of uh, being an author. Uh, you, you have to face a lot of rejection, people, lots of rejection. But something that uh, will not uh, disappoint you is my conversation today with Karen Manji. I had a great chat with her. 
the other day, and uh, and uh, I learned all about her philosophy. So first of all, she she wrote a book called Success with Less, and uh, it really you know kind of goes through her philosophy, you know, around you know not just you know uh, your corporate life or your professional life, but also your personal life as well. Uh, so great chat, all uh, you know about her philosophy around what success is, and really the way she she talks about success really does run contradictory to everything we've been taught about the subject. And and she freely admits it. Uh, you know, earlier on in her career, she learned that the formula success was, you know, saying yes to everything that's asked of you and then delivering without letting anybody see you sweat. Um, also delivering with excellence on top of that. Um, and that's, of course, you know, re- reflective of my experience as well. I mean, having spent 20 plus years in the corporate world, yeah, that's what a lot of people who rise through the ranks of corporate America, not always the smartest, but certainly those who are um, maybe the most fearless. I don't know. Uh, you know, people who, again, say yes and, and always deliver with greatness. But, um, you know, that that works until it doesn't, right? Uh, and, and gifts come in unlikely packages. So at 33, Karen herself was facing an undiagnosed illness. She didn't know what to call it, and neither did her team of five doctors. You know, the way I think about it is she was basically living an episode of the show House, if anybody remembers that medical drama House. I love that show. Um, but, you know, unlike that show, which concludes, you know, nightly, uh, not nightly, uh, nicely in a little 60-minute time slot, her journey was over multiple, multiple years. I think she mentioned it was like seven or eight years of, of living with this mystery illness. Um, so you might be wondering, you know, how could a mystery illness be a gift? Well, it forced Karen to reimagine what success means. And she made it her goal to get better. And when things were asked of her, you know, things were asked of her time, she would pause and ask herself, you know, will this help me achieve my goal? How will this help me achieve my goal? And if the answer was that it wouldn't, uh, she wouldn't take on that project. And that, that filter changed her life. And she realized that she could no longer fulfill that formula of success that involves saying yes to everything. And, uh, you know, fortunately her story has a happy ending. She was able to find an answer to what was ailing her. That mystery diagnosis is no longer a mystery. And I'll let you listen in, uh, to, to hear what that was. Um, and also if you, if you do listen in, you will see a connection between that mystery illness and professional wrestler, Jake, the snake Roberts. Um, so if nothing else, that's worth listening for. Right. Um, but even while she got healthy, you know, she was healthy again. She did not abandon her newfound philosophy. Instead, she continued to be more selective about the work she took on. She learned how to work better through other people and also lead each other, lead each other, lead other people more effectively to get work done. And I'm realizing that I'm babbling. I'm giving away way too much of the story here because this is really Karen's story to tell. And I'm going to put myself on pause and let you hear it from Karen herself. And I know that this is a story that you won't want to miss. It's, it really is a, a very um, fantastic interview. Loved uh, meeting Karen and conducting it. So, ladies and gentlemen, just like Tom Petty's friend Mary Jane, here's a woman who grew up in an Indiana town, Karen Manji. Well, it is manja in Italian, but I will tell you the American pronunciation is manji. Tragic little story. My parents almost named me Angie. So picture my life as a kindergartner being Angie Manji. Could have been awful. That, I mean, 
the only thing, the only good that may have come of that is like, uh, I don't know, maybe being a character in a Dr. Seuss novel or something like that. Oh, I love that. My grandmother actually subscribed us to a book of the month club when we were kids and the Dr. Seuss books were my favorite. So I can relate to that. What's, I mean, if you're thinking about all the Dr. Dr. Seuss books, is there one that rises to the top for you? Oh, I love Oh, the Places You'll Go. I, you know, if, if I were a betting man and I'm not, um, but I would have, I would have guessed that just because of, of, uh, the little bit I know about you and, uh, and, and the book that we will be talking about in a little bit, but I have to say, I'm not surprised by that answer. Well, sometimes I would have gotten the guess because of how much I love food and cooking green eggs and ham, but you know, I, I had to go in a different direction there. See, that's, that's my go-to as somebody who grew up with a very, uh, picky, uh, picky diet. Um, who, who is, you know, at 44, just kind of overcoming his fear of, <laughs> of, of various foods. Um, that, that, that's my go-to, but, uh, no, very cool. How cool is that? Dr. Seuss bringing people together. Absolutely. It's all about finding common ground, right? Absolutely. So, so Karen, you, uh, so d- now I know you're in Indiana. Did you, did you grow up in Indiana? Are you a, are you a Hoosier by, by birth or did you grow up somewhere else? I am a Hoosier by birth, so born in northern Indiana and then lived for a while in Illinois and then ultimately graduated high school in southern Indiana, Uh, so a little toward the Midwest and also university in Indiana. So it's like I can't get enough of what's happening in our great state. Well, there there you go. There you go, I guess. But that's a good thing, right? I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's fantastic. I actually love living here. And, you know, I think after you get established and you build friends and you get invested in the community and you have family and friends around you, uh, it's just a fantastic feeling. I mean, I have very good friends that live three doors down, you know, walkable. I'm fortunate to have my 95 year old world war II veteran grandfather still living. I see him every Sunday. Uh, My mother's here as well. And lots of other family members and friends. So, you know, it's fun to be connected to a community and a group of people and just build that, you know, sense of belonging in a different way as an adult. I know, you know, I made a a, a major mistake uh, along those grounds in my life. So i native of Connecticut, not a native, I, I was born in Florida, but I lived in Connecticut since 1983. So the vast majority of my life been in the nutmeg state. Uh, my kids were born here. My wife is a, a native of, of the town we currently live in, but about five years ago, in 2014, I got an opportunity to um, take a job in Los Angeles. And we talked about it, and we thought it would be a great adventure. Um, six months later... It was. <laughs> well, it, it, was, it was something. Six months later that we found ourselves back in Connecticut. Um, but you don't realize at the time, like once you have roots that are so firmly planted in the ground... You know, you don't really know how you're going to miss them when you're not in, in that environment. Um, and we had a few things that, that kind of all came together to, to pull us back, uh, pull us back home, so to speak. But, um, yeah, it was really one of those things where, uh, we, uh, we thought it would be fun. It was fun for a while. The honeymoon was over and, uh, we were all happy to come back home. There's a book I love called Refrigerator Rights and it's all about, taking stock of how many people in your life can come to your house or you can go to theirs and open the refrigerator without asking. (laughs) And kind of the concept is so often, you know, we move or go to different places because, you know, we're pursuing usually a career, right? Or we think something bigger 
And what sometimes get, gets lost in that process is intimate and deep relationships. So, see, I think you returned to your refrigerator rights and hopefully bought a bigger refrigerator when you went back. We have a Sub-Zero now, which I'm happy to say was actually just repaired last week. So there you go. It's all good. You're stocked and ready for the weekend then. We are. We are. So tell me, so when you were growing up in Indiana, um, what, did, what did you want to be when you grew up? I mean, what, what was your vision for your adult life? What I wanted to be when I grew up was a teacher. And I specifically thought that I wanted to teach music. Uh, because I taught myself to play the piano on a little toy piano. I think it probably had 32 keys and that little colored number stripe, right? And it, that horrible kind of tinny sound. Um, and we would go to church and I would come home and play the songs um, that I heard at church. And so that progressed also into singing and performing, which I really loved. And so that's what I thought that I would do uh, when I got older was was most likely become a music education um, person and make that my career path. And so what happened along the way that, that kind of, that kind of pulled you away from that? Well, I went to tour some schools, you know, some universities, uh, with a goal of doing either music education or just education, uh, maybe making music my minor. And one of the things that happened when I started seeing, you know, the practice rooms that had no windows and hearing the rigor around the number of hours people would spend practicing in those dark, lonely rooms, as well as the number of musical theory classes you needed to get a degree in that, what I started to realize was I could have any profession or career and still love music and do it. You know, it's, it's one of those aspects of life and areas of interest that no matter what your job is, you know, you can always sing and play the piano. And one of the things that I was concerned about was if I ultimately pursued a career in music for money, would I lose the joy and the passion for it? Yeah, that's so so interesting you say that. My um, my kids, I have I have three seventeen year olds at home, so I'm the my, my wife and I are the parents of triplets. Um, wow. and you know now we're going through that whole thing about you know where do you want to go to school? Like what colleges are you guys interested in? What do you think you want to study? And you know, they, they're, they're stressing, they're stressing so much out about kind of what, what they're really going to be interested in. And I'm like, you know what, you don't, you don't really have to know right now, but, um, I have one of my daughters is a gifted artist. I mean, from the time she could hold a crayon in her hand, she could draw whatever she saw. Um, and if you go to her room, which you wouldn't do because that'd be creepy. But if, uh, if I were to walk into her room right now, she, uh, she's got these beautiful hand sketched, you know, um, just portraits. And I say, you know, Gracie, why don't you go and study art, you know, become, be an art major or be a go in graphic design and, and very insightful at 17 says to me, dad, I want that to be my hobby. I don't want that to be what I do in life. I want to do this for fun. I want to do other stuff for work. I thought that was pretty insightful for a 17 year old. It's incredibly insightful. And, you know, I think one aspect that you don't always find out when you're that age is sometimes your dreams can be deferred and you revisit them and they come back in other ways. I mean, one of the great joys of my life in community investments is being on the board of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. So even though I'm certainly not a symphony level performer, I love being able to play a small role in helping make music and performing arts accessible to everyone. 
And so, you know, you get to enjoy that in a different way. And it sort of came back, you know, when I was 16 or 17, like your daughter, I never could have imagined really that there was such a thing or that that's an opportunity that might ever be available to me. And I found I just love it because, you know, it gives you a view of what it really takes to be a professional um, artist and performer and musician and also just how valuable that is to building a community. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's so cool to hear you, you know, you, you, you've taken your passion in a different direction, but it's still a part of your life and you're still impacting others with, with that. So I think that's really, really cool. So you, um, so you want to be a teacher, you taught yourself a piano. Do you still, do you still play? Do you still tickle the ivories, so to speak? I do still play the piano and I do still sing. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I was having a milestone birthday And I was visiting with someone who is a respected mentor and leader of mine. And I asked her for some advice in my milestone birthday year. And she said, I'll never forget this. I want you to think about something that you used to do frequently that brought you joy that you no longer do probably because you feel like you're too busy and, you know, something else, you know, has taken away time from that. And so I stepped away for a little bit and I thought, what would that be? And what I realized was I hadn't really performed in quite some time, even though I really enjoy it. And so I had the opportunity to connect with a local choir that was doing kind of a Broadway review show. And I went to the rehearsals and I sang in the choir and it was fantastic. I mean, it was just energizing and I did it for no other reason than it was just fun. Now, beyond that, it's also uh, pretty typical for me to have people over and host a dinner, and maybe it ends with a little bit of a sing-along at the piano. And I mean, it's a range, right? We could do Broadway, but we could be singing Piano Man Billy Joel, too. So there's a, there's a big range there. Yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting. My mother um, is 86 years old um, now, and I remember growing up, they, my, my parents were party people. I mean, you know, not like in the reckless, you know, kind of sense, but... You know, they they were from a time where they they were they were always hosting you know dinner parties at the house, and I just remember as a kid, um, you know, in the, in the mid to late nineteen seventies, kind of just walking through the house when when all the adults are hanging out. First of all, you're walking through like clouds of smoke, which is <laughs> certainly not healthy. Um, but apparently, according to my mom, they didn't know any better back then. So, but she was always it, it, the party would always end up at her piano. She um, was. She could have been, I think, a concert level pianist. I mean, she is amazing, and it's it's what's what's fascinating to me is her. You know, her memory is not great now. You know, she she has a lot of short term memory issues, um, not Alzheimer's or anything like that. But you know, she she has a hard time remembering. You know, keeping things in her short term. But if you put her in front of the piano, she can play anything from memory. I mean, just about anything. And I, I think that. I think music is just like part of your soul in that regard, don't, don't you think? Absolutely. When you said that, it took me back to my grandmother, unfortunately, having Alzheimer's disease and being in a nursing home. And she was at the point where she didn't know us by name, you know, didn't know things about herself. She had known her whole life. And we were there visiting her at lunchtime one day. So picture they're bringing everyone to the dining room and there was a piano there an old kind of stand-up spinet piano, and a hymn book. And I thought, you know what? I'll play some lunchtime music. And I sat down and started to play. 
And picture at this point, I mean, my grandmother could not even remember my mom's name and really didn't recognize her. But when I turned to the page of her favorite hymn and started to play it, she sang every single word from memory. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. I got chills when you just told me that story. Yeah, I haven't thought about that in a while. And she wasn't the only one singing along periodically. It was so fascinating. There was something about that connection that it just, you know, it took her to a place that was so familiar and so deeply embedded that it sort of transcended that really horrible illness. Well, speaking of uh, transcending things, let's let's transcend uh, transcend <laughs> into um, success for less. I love the title of this, and I'm I'm so curious about the title for this because I think so often we think of in in the modern world anyway. Um, you know, conventional thinking is success. You know, more comes with success, not necessarily less. So, give me a little bit of an overview of 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 um, of uh, this book and and kind of what drove you to um, put pen to paper. Well, I had that same philosophy that you just mentioned, that it was all about more. And, you know, kind of thinking back, we were reflecting on our childhoods. I was always the chore chart kid. I loved this, right? My mom would take the piece of poster board and the ruler and draw these little boxes with different tasks each day and those little lick and stick gold stars. And I loved them. And so I learned this, you know, kind of habit growing up that you create a to-do list you check off everything on it, and that is met with very positive and favorable reviews. And so when I went to the workplace, I took a combination of that philosophy, which in and of itself is great, and then paired it with observations of other people who looked like they were successful. And what I took away from that was, it seemed like people who were successful did several things. First, they said yes to everything. So do you want more responsibilities? Could you do this special project for the boss? The answer seemed like it was always yes. And then the results were delivered in a way that made it look and seem effortless, like barely a hair out of place. And then what came from that was an opportunity for more, you know, more responsibilities, more visibility, perhaps more pay and promotions. And I thought, okay, great. So I'll kind of do like this chore chart, plus say yes, and then take on more. And what's really interesting is it actually worked. I got several promotions, increased responsibilities. And I thought, okay, you know, I, I think I've unlocked the formula for success. And one of the challenges in my case was that I didn't really understand because I never asked these successful looking people did they really say yes to everything? Was it really effortless? And was it really worth what it took? And so those questions really came into a laser-focused point of view for me when I hit the point that some strange things started happening. Like, I would notice I was starting to forget things, like intermittently. Uh, Then I noticed I was starting to feel kind of tired and gaining a little weight. And so I explained it all away. You know, I'm very busy, I'm traveling, so I'm eating more meals. You know, I'm, I'm trading workout time for work time. So I just need to readjust. Well, all of that came crashing down the day that I went to pick up my mobile phone to call my brother, and I couldn't remember his name. Mm-hmm. And for some context, I mean, I have one brother, and we talk every week. Mm-hmm. And it was that moment. And we have these very attention-getting moments in life that you just can't ignore or explain away any longer. And for me, that launched 
ultimately an eight-year major medical journey. And the implication of that was I could no longer fulfill that formula for success that I had put in place for myself. I, I mean, I literally couldn't do more. And so kind of the turning point in my story really came when I had to think about the, for the first time really in my life that I was very conscious and aware that I had a limited amount of time and energy and was I spending it on what mattered, you know, given that I had very real limits at that point. And so what I realized at that time was my top goal was to get healthy. And so every time I was asked to do something or every time I was about to put another appointment on my calendar, that one goal, that top priority became the filter for does this meeting or use of my time move me closer toward that goal or further from it? And so what I really learned was, you know, this new formula that was pause, right? That pause was forced on me. I find the ones we choose feel a lot better, but take a pause, ponder is the next piece. So really think about like what's happening right now. You know, how do I feel kind of take stock and the last piece is prioritized. So when you can get to that one clear priority, what happens is you get to redefine what success looks like, or you get to define it for yourself. And it becomes a whole lot easier to say yes to what matters and to say no and release obligations that, that no longer serve you. So when, also, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say like when you're, when you're having this kind of realization and it's funny, I just, I just wrote a character who, you know, after a big health scare, uh, just completely changed his life around. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he made some very difficult choices about, about his employment and about his, his whole approach to life. And I'm just curious what your experience is, you know, kind of going from this person who was saying yes to everything to then having that filter of, will this bring me closer to my goal of getting healthy, you know, yes or no. How, how was that received in your day-to-day life, you know, in, in the workplace and, and, and in all of the, kind of the other things you have, you know, you have going on in your life? I have to tell you, I felt absolutely terrified and really afraid because I thought, where will this go? You know, is this the end of my career? You know, am I going to lose friends? Uh, You know, what's going to happen? And that was a really frightening feeling. And, you know, I felt very alone with it because it's a personal choice, just like your friend that you were describing. And so it was interesting because I decided to, you know, kind of start small, like start with something that didn't have huge implications, like cleaning out the junk drawer, you know, this thing with like the carryout menus, the rubber bands, part of your kid's science fair project, whatever it might be. And I thought, okay, here's what I can get rid of right now. I can say no to clutter in this one drawer. So it opens. And I was like, okay, that's a good warm up. Then I chose like one not-for-profit organization that I was on the board where I felt like I kind of served my purpose and I was no longer as passionate about the cause. And I had this big talk track in my head. I'm going to go in, I'm going to resign. And that was great until I was looking the, the chair of the board in the eye and I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And I had to remind myself, like, you want to be healthy. You could reclaim a few hours. Don't you need a few hours? And so I said to the person, you know, I've been thinking about it. You may have noticed um, that, that I'm not looking and, and sort of behaving like myself because by that point, you know, my hair was starting to fall out. My skin was kind of gray. Um, I, I mean, I just didn't look well. And I said, I, you know, I've really been evaluating and I, I need to step away from some of my commitments so that I can focus on getting healthy. 
I'm really sorry. I hope I haven't left you in a bad position. Happy to help look for my replacement. Um, but my top priority right now is really getting well. And I waited for this, you know, horrible reaction, right? Because in your head, right, we all have this inside voice that's saying, they're finally going to know you shouldn't have been there, right? Or how could you let them down? Or it's for a great cause, whatever it might be. And the person looked at me and said, I'm so glad to hear that. Is there anything I can do to help you on your journey? And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so refreshing. And so, you know, that gave me just the smallest bit of confidence to sort of try that talk track again. And, you know, each, each place that I tried it, it worked. And, and I'm often asked like, well, what happened at work? Did you just say no to everything? I didn't. What I did do was sit down with my team and ask some questions like, are there meetings we're having that no longer need to take place? Or are there meetings that could become emails? Or are there emails that could become, you know, a voicemail? How do we reclaim some time? And then I also ask them, what tasks do you see me doing that you're ready to take on? And, you know, I shared part of it is I want to get healthy. Part of it is it's eye-opening how much you take on without really thinking about it when you just do what's on your calendar from appointment to appointment to appointment. And so what I found was releasing some of those calendar obligations gave other people permission to do the same and also that there were lots of people around me who were ready to take on something new and different. And what that freed up for me was both time and energy to focus on my goal, but it also interestingly, side benefit, made space for me to take on different tasks that ultimately helped me in my career, which wasn't my objective at the time, but turned out to be a fantastic side benefit. I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're describing this, um, you know, I know it's, it's kind of still a mystery uh, illness here, but uh, as something that it, it almost has like these, these gifts that have come along with it. Um, you know, this gift of kind of insight into how you're spending your time and how you're choosing to spend your time, um, giving you gifts almost as, as a manager of people and, and helping them you know, by giving them the opportunity to, to rise up and, and flourish. And of course, you yourself kind of freeing up your time. But also, it sounds like there's some, some personal development that was happening on, on your side as well. Very much so. And I'll never forget the time when I came back from taking my first actual vacation where I wasn't trying to sneak in a few phone calls and emails and texts, like literally took a break. And when I came back, I thought, oh, wow, I feel so refreshed. I was much more stunned, though, to your point, by the reaction from my team. They looked at me and said, we are so glad that you finally trusted us enough to take a break and leave us here in charge. Wow. And it was, it was this eye-opening moment. I thought, oh my goodness, I am paying forward, you know, accidentally really, uh, this expectation of being always on, always plugged in, always responsive. And I'm perpetuating a cycle that probably contributed to me getting and being so sick for so long. And so it was really eye-opening that, you know, especially as a leader, you sometimes put forth expectations without stating them and they're not always what you intend. And so it was really eye-opening for me, you know, and I think back on that so many times of, I never realized how much some of my choices or how I defined success or was trying to go about it really affected other people. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You mentioned um, kind of, did, did you say eight years of, of kind of going back and forth with doctors about this? 
Yeah. So it was three and a half years of being chronically misdiagnosed. So picture, you know, I'm taking more pills and seeing more physicians and getting sicker. And I was very fortunate to form a partnership with a physician who ultimately got me to the correct diagnosis. And then it took the balance of that time. I mean, those remaining years um, to get through a treatment program and deal with all the implications uh, of being so ill for so long. So start to finish, it was about an eight-year journey. Can you, can you share what the diagnosis is or do you not feel comfortable doing yes. that? Yes. Well, I write about it in the book, so I am comfortable sharing it. So I was diagnosed with DDT, pesticide poisoning. If you're going to choose an illness, I don't really recommend that one. But uh, you know, if you think back, when we were kids, right, they would come through your neighborhood with like the fog machine in the summer to spray for bugs. You know, that was DDT at that time. That's what got put on fields. You know, it was in the food we ate, the air we breathed, the water we drank. And while not everyone gets to the same toxic level of exposure that I did, um, it was challenging to diagnose it because it shows up as so many other mysterious symptoms. And what happens is, you know, someone will tell you, oh, you have a thyroid problem or you know, an adrenal gland problem or fill in the blank. And so they treat that one, you know, isolated situation without really diving into the root cause. And so I was fortunate to find the right kind of medical partner who said, there's a root cause for this. We just need to figure out what it is. And he was incredibly persistent in sticking with me until we figured that out. Um, and once I got to the correct diagnosis, you know, he knew exactly what to do. And you know, I, I did get some immediate relief, which was fantastic after all that time. But it was, you know, really finding the right kind of partner and also uh, refusing to believe that all those, you know, pills and other diagnoses were correct and going to make me well. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, I mean, it's like you, you were living, I don't know if you ever watched the show House, but it sounds like you were living an episode of the show House. Exactly. Yes. I would laugh about this. I mean, I felt like, you know, my doctor was always thinking I, I would joke, you know, I would get a call and they would say, were you ever bitten by a dog on a Tuesday when it was raining and you were sad? I'm like, I don't think so, but maybe what, what might I have? Right. I mean, it was just this quest uh, for information. And I think, you know, it was such an important lesson of trusting your gut you know, no matter what someone else tells you, it doesn't matter it's about, whether it's about your health or success or anything else. You know, when you know that the information you're getting doesn't align with either what works for you um, or what you know to be a good path for you, sometimes refusing to accept that is a challenge and it takes energy. Um, but it's, you know, finding the right partners and people around you you know, who will stick with you on those journeys and encourage you to keep trying, even when some of those journeys get really long, uh, makes such a huge difference. Yeah. And, and on top of that, it's like you, in our, in the way our medical system works, like you have to be your own advocate. Um, you know, you, you almost have to get your medical degree through, you know, WebMD and Mayo Clinic. And, and I don't know how much you know time you spent kind of looking into symptoms and Googling, but Way uh, too much. I had diagnosed myself with lots of things. <laughs> sure. Well, what, what were some of the like more terrifying things you diagnosed yourself with just out of curiosity? Oh, you know, you get into the major ones, right? I'm thinking, you know, I have MS. I'm in this whole like autoimmune category perhaps. Um, yeah. And then you always read the like freak illness categories, right? Where it's like someone got 
you know, bitten by a tick and then they end up with this like Lyme disease that then progresses into like they're losing their limbs, right? So you, you do read terrifying stories. And I think the other thing too is when some of your symptoms are things like extreme fatigue, I mean, do you have mono or are you dying? I mean, there's a huge continuum there. Right. Um, what might be wrong? All right, sure, sure. Did, did you ever, um, <laughs> I, and you can feel free to yell at me for asking this question. When you were a, a kid, did you ever watch professional wrestling? Oh, my goodness, I did. Yes, this was something I would do with my brother. And I could do so many impressions for you of, you know, Macho Man Randy Savage and, like, the whole deal. Uh, but yes, absolutely watch those. And it was, wasn't it the main event? Was oh, there was, the, the main event was out there, but I, I was going to ask, do you remember a wrestler named Jake the Snake Roberts? Of course, yes. And do you remember what his finishing move was? Oh my goodness, I've lost that to time. Remind me, what was it? This is going to hit way too close to home. It was called the DDT. <gasps> I have completely forgotten. Now maybe that's going to be my new mascot. There you go. You can take the snake. He's still kicking too. I think he just wrote a book uh, last year. I think his book came out. But wow! See, this is how immature I can be at times. When when I heard you say DDT poisoning, the first thing that came into my mind was Jake the Snake Roberts. Well, if it makes you feel any better, the first thing that came into my mind when you were talking about the seventies dinner party earlier and your mom was I always knew when my parents were going to have a dinner party because I would open the refrigerator and my mom would have made, do you remember those old school, the cheese ball? Oh, yeah. The cream cheese, right? And some kind of yellow cheese. And then it's rolled in those almonds. And there was a specific container. It was wood with kind of, it was round wood and then a little tile. And it had that glass dome on the top. And I always just remember opening the refrigerator and being like, we're having company. So see, your mom is like playing classical music at the piano. I'm like, yay, we're having a cheese bowl. This is so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, my mom still has that dish and still breaks it out at the holidays. No, sure. You got to. I mean, it's tradition. You can't break with tradition. Absolutely. So when did you start thinking, hey, you know, my story is um, compelling enough to be turned into a book? When when did that kind of seed get planted in your mind? Isn't it funny how sometimes other people see potential in you that you don't see in yourself? So I uh, was asked to give a motivational speech to close a women in tech conference. And I thought that sounded absolutely awful. (laughs) And the only reason I ultimately agreed to do it is because the woman who was leading the conference, I went through my master's degree with, and she's also a friend. And so I really kind of framed up this story about learning how to pause. And kind of my concept at the time was anchored around, you know, the things that happen to us when we use that phrase, like it gave me pause are usually major, right? Someone has passed away. You've gotten divorced. You've lost your job. I mean, major medical in my case. And what I was finding over time was the pauses I chose to do things like take a vacation or watch the sunset felt really empowering. And it was a fundamentally different feeling. So I was talking about, uh, you know, a little bit about my, the catalyst for that discovery, which was being so ill for so long. And what I had learned about applying that concept of pausing to uh, my calendar, my career, my relationships and my health and kind of sharing some tips. And after the speech was over, you know, people were talking with me and telling me their stories and asking me, 
do you have a YouTube channel? Do you do coaching? And I was like, really, my goal here was not to bomb this presentation. (laughs) (laughs) And so afterwards, it was about a week later, a woman from the audience called me and said, I want to talk to you about your speech. Could you come to my office? And I thought that she wanted me to perhaps just give that same speech to another group, which is what's really dangerous about assumptions. (laughs) So I sat down and she said, you need to do something with your story. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you know, I was sitting in the back and I watched people at the beginning. They were on their phones and, you know, kind of chitter chattering. And the longer you talked and then when you got into your story in such a real way, the whole room just got quiet and people were very attentive. And she said, as I talked to people afterwards, what they appreciated was, you're still in your job. You know, you're still growing your career. You're still participating in life. And you're telling us all the ways that it went wrong and helping everyone feel normalized that you do get sick. You do get overwhelmed. Sometimes you do feel hopeless. And then offering us a way forward. You know, not as someone who quit your job and started surveying people about, you know, fatigue or pausing or getting healthy. Like, You're still in this life trying to figure out how to find this balance. And she said, I think you have a story that people would want to hear. And I was like, what do you have in mind? She said, do you want to figure this out on your own or do you want me to tell you? And I'm like, please just tell me. I'm very confused. She's like, well, you should write a book and et cetera, et cetera. And as it so happens, uh, her job is to help women launch their own businesses. Uh, So she really took me through the journey of, you know, how to find a publisher, how to trademark my concept, you know, how to market it, how to launch it, how to meet other women business owners. And really, if it weren't for being asked to give that speech and then having someone proactively approach me, which I acknowledge is incredibly unusual, um, I'm not sure I would have written a book. But what I found so rewarding is as I share my story, I just love the minutes when people come back and say, I made a choice or made a change that was inspired either by your book or by our conversation that's helping me live life for the better. And for me, that's really what it's about. Yeah. How rewarding is that though? I mean, that, that's gotta be, that's gotta make you feel like all the hours you spent, first of all, all the, all the years you spent, you know, struggling with, with the mystery illness, um, then going through treatment, making the changes. And then just to have that moment where somebody comes up to you and says, you know what? you've said something or you've done something that has helped me improve my life. That's got to be a powerful moment. It is a powerful and a humbling moment. And, you know, sometimes you and I and and all of us, you know, want someone else to give us permission to do the things we already know that we need to do for ourselves. You know, whether it's getting away from a toxic relationship or changing doctors or, you know, finding new types of relationships or friends or opportunities. Sometimes it's really helpful to have somebody else look at you and say, I hear you and I think you're on the right track. Just keep going. Yeah. It's amazing what that small amount of permission can do to free all of us, you know, from that perception that we have to keep saying yes and that success is all about doing more. So how how did you find um, the writing and and then, you know, eventual publishing process? What, what did you learn about anything about yourself you know, during that part of, of the journey? I learned that I'm a much better uh, speaker than, than writer. <laughs> and it, 
for how many books exist. I mean, think about walking into a bookstore or just how many books you've read in your life. I got into that journey and I marveled at how many people have done it. I was like, how does this happen? This is so difficult. Um, it, you know, it was such a great learning experience. I just had no idea what I was in for when I was starting it. Uh, so I think, you know, naively, I believed it's like you just kind of write this story and then you make a few edits and then you're set. And I didn't really realize that editing can sort of be like rewriting an entire book and you still have to, you know, like write a bio and find some people to write about your book and, you know, write a forward. All of these aspects I didn't really think through despite having read so many books and knowing authors. And then the other piece, you know, is when your book comes out, that's like day zero or day one to the entire rest of the world. So then the work just shifts to now people need to know about this book, right? <laughs> and I think I hadn't thought about that really. Um, interestingly enough, but I just thought, I don't know, you, you know, kind of tell your story and away you go. Like, what do you do tomorrow? I, you know, I, I, I used to think that like early on when I first started writing, I'm like, you know, writing is going to be the hard part. You know, I've, I've worked in marketing now for 20 plus years. You know, I've worked with some of the, the world's best marketers. I've consulted for them. Um, I'm like, you know, marketing is going to be the easy part. Mm-hmm. And what I quickly learned <laughs> was uh, writing is the easy part. Uh, marketing is probably the most um, challenging part of, of, you know, being an author, you know, trying to convince people to buy your book. You know, mm-hmm. when, like you said, you know, you walk into a Barnes and Noble or, or wherever and, you know, there's no shortage of books to choose from, especially, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I write fiction. I mean, I mean, look at the fiction section of any bookstore. It's, you know, there's, there's a lot to choose from, you know. Um, so, the, but I, that's what I quickly learned was that, okay, you know, it's getting the word out and, and you know, doing the PR stuff and, and learning promotions and kind of doing it all, um, you know, for the most part on your own. Like if, if you're fortunate, your publisher helps you out a little bit. Nice. Uh, but this day and age, you know, even the big publishing houses, you know, it's it's kind of in the it's, the authors are in the driver's seat when it comes to uh, marketing and promotion. That is so well said and absolutely true. <laughs> um, so as we as we wrap up here again, just being kind of conscious of uh, of your time, um, you know, if you if you were to um, you know, they're, they're Brad Paisley is one of my favorite musicians. Uh, and he, he's got this song, uh, it's probably about 12 years old now, it's called Letter to Me, where he, uh, he envisions himself, himself in, in, his present, in his present age, in current day, writing a letter to his like 16 or 17-year-old self, kind of giving that you know, younger version of himself some advice. Um, if you could do the same, what would you tell a younger version of yourself? You know, maybe, and you, you could pick, you know, how old you might be in, in, in the past here, but, um, you know, maybe it's, it's uh, the girl who was looking to become a, a music teacher or um, maybe it's a, another point in time of your life. But you know, Karen, what would you tell, what would you tell yourself? What, what would you say? I would say, enjoy the climb. You know, I think so often for myself, it it's been all about, you know, getting to a goal or to a destination or to a deliverable without really thinking about, is that where I wanted to spend my best energy and what else was happening along the way? And I find for myself even now that I have to remind myself to just take a step, 
take a breath, look around and take it all in. And it came into focus for me recently. I had an experience where I was going somewhere that was very private access and you weren't allowed to take any phones or any devices that had a camera. And what that forced was being incredibly present in every second. And because it was uh, kind of a memorable and special occasion, I was thinking to myself, I want to remember, you know, how the trees looked, what the temperature of the air was like, you know, how did the flowers smell as I'm walking by, you know, the sound of people's feet on the gravel. I want to, I want to take this all in. I thought, wow, if I could have told my 16 year old self, stop and take it all in and enjoy it. And you know what? The rest will come. You know, you're going to get there, whether you take a hundred steps really quickly or a little bit at a time, and you'll just have more energy to enjoy the destination when you get there. Yeah. My, uh, I, I took martial arts for a while and our, uh, our Shihan or master instructor uh, used to, you know, he used to say that when he saw us getting distracted, you know, cause you, you, you go into the dojo and you know, it was an adult class, so we all kind of came in after work with a thousand things on our mind. Right. Um, he would always used to reinforce, in the moment, be in the moment. And he used to say, in the moment, at your best. Because if your mind is wandering, you're not in the moment. Um, but if, <laughs> when, you were, when you were talking about enjoying the climb, as, aside from the Miley Cyrus song that was going through my head, <laughs> um, which actually is a, is a wonderful song um, as far as Miley Cyrus goes, I remember when I was a kid, we, I, I was born in Florida. We moved to Connecticut in 1983. Um, and we, we were a family of six. So I, I have a twin brother and then an older brother, older sister. And my grandparents, you know, remained down in, in Florida. They lived in Pompano Beach. So every year, um, my father and mother would drive us down. We would do the drive from, from Connecticut to, to Florida, which is about a 22-hour drive. We would break it up over the course of a couple of days. And I remember um, my fondest memories of those trips to Florida weren't necessarily the time we spent at the beach and, and doing things on vacation. What I remember most vividly is the drive. It, it, it was the journey to get there. You know, the, 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 the things you learn about yourself and, and, your, and, uh, and your family – when you're stuck in a car with them for 22 hours, but it's, it's, I remember the drive and the little adventures we would have. I remember one year, a stomach bug, like went through the car and, um, you know, I remember there was these, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever done the drive, but there's, there's a, a portion when you're driving, um, in North Carolina towards South Carolina, you see all these billboards for something called South of the border, which is this kind of, uh, little theme park hotel, you know, this like Mexican themed hotel mm-hmm. um, that's on the border between South and, and North Carolina. And, you know, you start seeing the billboards advertising it, you know, probably 300 miles from, from the destination. And I, I was in a parking lot the other day and I saw, and I haven't seen a South of the border sticker in decades, but I <laughs> saw one and I took a picture. Uh, I took a picture of it and I sent it to, to the family. And I said, hey, uh, do, you, do you guys remember this? Do you remember South of the Border? Because, you know, it was, it was such a big part of our childhood. And then all of a sudden, you know, my sister, my brothers, they were like responding with the different taglines they remember from, I mean, road trips 30 years ago that were on the billboards. You know, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Oh, my brother and I on the drive to Florida 
We knew we were getting closer when we started seeing the billboards for the Ron John Surf Shop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, how many miles are you to that? Our other milestone counter was that, you know, our our parents were focused on making sure we had nutritious food, which is fantastic. Uh, but we weren't allowed to eat, like, a lot of sweets. And so one of the great things about those car trips is our mom would do a candy bag you know, Starburst and Skittles and, you know, butterscotch candies. It would be in this huge gallon size Ziploc bag and it would be under the seat. And every so often we would be allotted like something from the candy bag. And because it was almost always summer when we made that drive, you would pull it out from under the seat and, you know, the candy's <laughs> a little bit warm and like overly chewy because of the temperature. So it was like, oh, this is the best. I can have like Every flavor of Starburst in one sitting. This is living. <laughs> For us, it was Yoohoo. My parents would uh, <laughs> we, we'd have a little ice box, uh, and and it was stashed with Yoohoo. And um, and I, I think they still make it, but I remember this. That was like part of that was that was as much part of the journey as as anything else was Yoohoo and glass bottles. Um, so. Very cool. This was this has been a fantastic conversation. I love how like billboards and Dr. Seuss, we can find common ground in in two very very different things. Not to mention seventies dinner parties. Well, you know it's a good thing that I didn't mention that my my parents during their dinner parties would have a fishbowl that everyone would put their keys in. So. <laughs> that's that's a complete fabrication. <laughs> Somewhere your mom is going to cry when she hears that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope she doesn't. <laughs> uh, but Karen, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, actually, why don't why don't we just do one more plug here? Where um, where can people find Success with Less? They can find it at successwithless.net or on Amazon, and can also reach out to me either through the website or on the Twitter handle of the same name. All right, very good. Well, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today, and I hope you have a great rest of your afternoon. Thanks. You as well. Have a great weekend. Bye. Well, there you have it. My conversation with the uh, very pleasant Karen Manji. God, what a great conversation, I have to say. Uh, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but uh, that was uh, that I think was uh, a great conversation. I felt good about it anyway. How, how did how did you feel about it? Did you feel good? Well, that's important. I mean, if you did feel good about it and you liked what you heard, please consider telling a friend. Uh, forward this over to uh, anyone you think would appreciate hearing Karen Mangie's story. And if you want to learn more about Karen Mangie and her book, Success With Less, go to successwithless.net. And of course, if you want to learn more about me and my writing, you may feel free to go to michaelcarlinauthor.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. You can also check me out at uncorkingastory.com where you could hear this interview and many, many others that I've done over the years. So uh, thank you for listening. And uh, until next time, uh, tomorrow is Mother's Day. So I want to take a minute just to, to wish everybody a happy Mother's Day. But of course, the chances that you're listening to this before Mother's Day are pretty low. So I think I'm wasting my time. Anyway, if you are listening to this after Mother's Day and you're a mom, I hope you had a great Mother's Day. And if you're not a mom, but you have a mom and she's still around, I hope you wished her a happy Mother's Day. All right, until next time.